We're going to get our Bibles out and get back into 1 Thessalonians. Opening up to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where we left off. Sometimes I, I try not to jump too quickly in because people are going downstairs and dropping off kids or they're, they're, they're coming off the stage, but I'm really excited to get in the Word tonight. You know, uh, we've had a, a, a good, hopefully strengthening and edifying time in 1 Thessalonians 4. This whole book has been, uh, to me, very helpful because it's, it's practical, but it's Thoroughly spiritual at the same time, just like the whole Bible. I mean, it's funny to be in the period of three different, uh, three different services in First Thessalonians four. First Thessalonians four begins talking about sexual immorality, then jumps to talking about working with your hands and minding your business, and then we're going to talk about the return of Christ all in one chapter. <laughs> So, I mean, if you haven't figured out life in this chapter, I don't know what's left. I mean, <laughs> of course, there's a lot more to it, but um, we're going to dive right into 1 Thessalonians 4. I understand that sometimes as believers, we uh, tend to get jaded by topics where there's arguments, by topics that people uh, clash on. I know a lot of believers that barely ever touch the book of Revelation because they're just quite frankly, so confused by it, they don't want to go near it. But you know, the Bible does say, blessed is the one that reads this, and blessed is the one that hears it. I think that every word in the scripture is going to do you good. Every single one of it. Every single word. And I think that uh, it's okay if tonight we have three or more different viewpoints of exactly the timeline of how this is all going to end up. I understand I've got friends that disagree with me. I disagree with them. I, I, I can safely say I have an idea from what I've read in the Scripture and how I interpret the Scripture of, of how I think this is all going to turn out. But I can guarantee you when we stand before Jesus, I'm going to look back and I'm going to say, well, I thought that might have been different. Oh, that surprised me. <laughs> and uh, that's just, you know, I, I think that we should all uh, endeavor to let the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us through his word and teach us and show us things. I don't think there's, I don't think nobody's right and nobody's wrong. I think that there is, God knows exactly how this is going to happen. I believe it's revealed in his word, but I'm going to just tell you right now, there are people that believe this happens before this, then this happens, and then this happens. And you might disagree with me on that. I might disagree with you. But if we do believe this, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That the cross of Jesus Christ took our sin. The resurrection gave us an identity in Christ. And he will come again. Amen. If we believe that, we're all okay, all right? So we're going to focus on the word tonight. And we're going to focus on this chapter and, 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 and jump back to Paul's letter to the Corinthians as well. But I want you to see this in 1 Thessalonians 4. And... Uh, we're going to skip down to verse 13. Now, I believe this, that there are two events in which all of history hangs. I mean, you could say three. If you, if you say the fall of man was a, a major event in human history, I agree with you. It just wasn't a God-ordained event. But there are two God-ordained events that all of history hangs on. That's Jesus Dying on the cross and rising again for us, which I'm going to say is one event. And that's the coming, the second coming of Jesus. All of history hangs on those two moments. Everything leading up to the cross was about the cross and the resurrection. Everything after points back to it, but it also points ahead. He's coming back. Now, I've read the scriptures. I've read the New Testament uh, as many times as I think I can fit into my lifetime. I've read it over and over, just as you have. And what I get from these scriptures that I read in the New Testament is that God wants a group of people that are eagerly awaiting, looking forward to his promise being fulfilled, looking forward to his return. Just as in the Old Testament, he was wanting a people that were looking forward to his first coming, to his redeeming Israel, to his coming as the Messiah. This is uh, 
the great flaw in the Pharisees is that they, they believed or they, they learned and studied the word of God. They learned all about the Messiah. They could tell you all these facts and, and, and things about him and they could describe where he was going to be born and, and what he was going to do. But when he stood right in front of their face, they didn't recognize him. I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about Simeon, who's an old man. And the Bible says he was righteous, he was devout, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And God promised them, you are not going to die until you see the salvation of Israel. You're not going to die until you see my salvation. And as an old man, he sees this baby that everybody else thinks is just just a regular baby coming to the temple to be dedicated. But he sees the Messiah. He sees salvation. He says, I can now die in peace. Anna is in the temple at the same time. An old lady who she's been coming to the temple regularly to pray and to worship. And the Bible says she was a prophetess, and she sees Jesus. She knows who he is, and she begins to prophesy. She begins to recognize him, and then goes back and tells all of those who were looking. So apparently there were a group of people in Israel that were waiting and looking, and there was a big chunk of people that said they were looking but weren't really looking. And I think you can find those kind of people today who we could say all day long until the cows come home, yeah, Jesus is coming soon, but there's not really an expectation of it. Part of that is, I mean, guys, let's be honest, part of that is there's been so many people that in their attempts to rightly divide the word of truth have gotten it wrong, have said Jesus is coming back on this day and this hour and this is, when it, this is how it's going to happen, stood in Times Square waiting for him to come back. He never did. And so what happens? Christians get jaded. I don't want to hear about that anymore. Look how many people it's led astray. Well, first and foremost, the scripture says no man knows the day or the hour, but the Father does. I believe we can sure know the season, but you know, I've, I've learned through the scripture, I believe you have too, that God's definition of soon might not be your definition of soon. I believe Jesus could come back in the next hour. He could come back decades, a century from now, I don't know. I believe the signs are here that he's coming back soon. But God gets to decide what soon means, doesn't he? <laughs> and the book, Peter actually says that the reason God has delayed is not because he's slow, but because he's patient. Because he desires all men to be saved. So we look at the patience of God and we say, he hasn't delayed his return because he's just a slow God. He's delayed because he's a patient God. But I want us to read this in 1 Thessalonians 4. You've heard enough of me talking. Let's see what the Bible says. Because this is speaking to a group of people who are just born again. He's addressing issues that are very elementary. They haven't received as much teaching as some of the other churches because Paul was run out of town fairly early in the church history here in, in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, can we speak plainly like Jesus spoke plainly? Jesus said, Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples said, well, then let's just, he'll wake up on his own. We don't have to go. Jesus said, well, fine, I'll speak plainly. He's dead. So there is a way to say it where you just say, we don't want you to be unaware about those who are dead. But I think that the Apostle Paul's teaching us a new way to talk, which is believing what God says that Death no longer has hold over us. That we, we don't die. Our bodies, our bodies may be in the ground. Our bodies may die, but we don't. The Bible says that, that it, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that life and immortality have been brought to light through the gospel. Brought to light. Life and immortality have been brought to light through the gospel. So throughout the New Testament, it talks about those that are asleep. Because, guys, the death, the last death you ever had to die, you've already died, right? You died. Go back to that day that you confessed Jesus as Lord, that you gave your life to him. That was the moment you died. That's the last death you're going to die. If your body dies, if your heart gives out, if you uh, get eaten by sharks, doesn't matter. Your spirit lives on. And the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For those that are in Christ. Jesus' example, he talked about Lazarus, a poor man, and a, and a, a certain rich man. He said, when the rich man died, immediately he lifted up his eyes, and he was in hell. 
There was no delay. There was no wandering around, haunting houses. He was immediately in hell, just as Lazarus was immediately in, in paradise in the bosom of Abraham. But now in the new covenant, after this, on this side of the cross, we are, as Paul said, absent from the body, we are with the Lord. That's cool. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, because the question going around in this church was, you guys told us Jesus is coming back, but what happens to the people that died? I mean, you told us he's coming back for us, but what about the people that have already died? He says, don't worry. Those who are asleep, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You know, Jesus told us to mourn with those who mourn. There is, as we sang just a moment ago, a time for weeping, a time for mourning. But it's not the same as those who have no hope. Right? It's not that spirit of grief. It's not that, that, that despair. You know, the word despair means without hope. To despair means there's no hope left. You're done. And the Bible tells us that we are not those who have no hope. We have hope. It's okay to say I miss somebody. It's okay to say I, I, I'm, I'm sad that they're gone. But there is a difference between that and the sorrow of the world which brings death. And so here we say, well, we don't sorrow as those who, or, or in this translation, we do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. There's a difference. We have hope. Hope's looking ahead. And we've talked about this before, but the Bible's definition of hope is not a wish. I hope the Oilers win tonight. That's not what the Bible calls hope. That's your desire. But the scripture talks about hope as an earnest expectation. You fully expect. I fully expect. So my hope is that I'm going to be with Jesus. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's what's going to happen. So I'm not saying, well, if somebody say, are, are, are you going to go to heaven? I hope so. Yes. I say, I hope so. Yes. And that may, that, that may not work in our English language anymore in 2017. Because when I say that to you, it sounds like I'm not sure. Yeah. But my hope is sure. In fact, the scripture says that we have a hope that's an anchor for our souls. Your soul needs an anchor. And that hope anchors our soul where? It doesn't anchor it to you. It doesn't anchor it to the world. It anchors it to the very throne of God. That's your hope. Your hope is anchored to him. You know, the interesting thing about hope, if you read throughout the Bible, is that hope, biblical righteous hope, has everything to do with his character. Because he never changes, my hope is secure. My hope is tied to him. My hope is not tied to me. My hope is not tied to my church. My hope is not tied to my friends. My hope is not tied to my pastor. My hope is tied to my great high priest. My hope is tied to God himself. And here it says, we're not those who have no hope. Verse 14 for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, can we just settle that tonight? I don't know everybody here. Can we just settle that tonight? Do we believe that Jesus died and rose again? Yes. Yeah? All right, well, we can move on. If you don't believe that, then I hope by the end of the night you believe that. You know, I mean, that's my prayer. But let's start with that. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... What does even so mean? In the same way. So just as we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, even so, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. I like that phrase. I wish we used it more. In fact, we should use it more. Someone has fallen asleep in Jesus. That's such a cool way to put it. What are you saying? You're, you're saying they are secure. I've got no doubt about this. They, are, they have fallen asleep in Jesus. Doesn't that paint a totally different picture than saying they died? They died brings grief and, and, and loss and, 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 and that it's just a, a despair. They've died. It's over. But when you say they have fallen asleep in Christ, they have fallen asleep in Jesus, then that puts your faith and your hope firmly and steadfastly in who he is. 
said those that have fallen asleep in Jesus, God's going to bring them with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. I love that. We're saying this to you by the word of the Lord. So if you just think this is Paul's opinion, you got to backtrack. He says, I'm saying this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I want to ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't even have to nod your head. Just, just answer it within yourself. When's the last time you comforted somebody who had just uh, seen somebody pass away, if you want to use that terminology, but seen someone fall asleep in Christ? When's the last time we used these words to comfort someone? Now, maybe you might say, well, last month. I mean, that, that could possibly be. So many times people comfort with somebody with, well, they're there, and, you know, I know you'll get through it, and I'll always be with you, but, but this is real comfort. This is real strengthening. This is real encouragement. I mean, I, and I don't mind you saying, well, you know, they're with the Lord. Praise God. That's awesome. But he says you can comfort them with this, and, and really the people he's trying to comfort are the people that are worried that, well, they're not going to be with us. We're... Because these are people that are expecting, and I believe Paul expected it too, that Jesus was going to come in his lifetime. He didn't know. You know, Jesus said there is one person that knows the times and the epochs, and that's the Father. So nobody knew. Even Paul thought, I mean, I believe even Paul thought. That's what I'm just inferring from what he wrote. I believe even Paul thought he could come in my lifetime. You know, these, these people thought they might come in my lifetime too. They probably expected it. And I don't think that means you're wrong. I think that's the way we're supposed to live, as if Jesus could come back tomorrow. I mean, because how do you live if you believe Jesus is going to come back? I'm not talking about in fear that he comes back. I'm talking about in hope that he's coming back. Here's the deal. You don't lose anything. Because if you live today like he's coming back tomorrow, even if you lay your body down, you're going to get a well-done, good and faithful servant. Well, I've used this example before, but come on, if you're running, if you ran that McDonald's over there and you left somebody in charge and you said, you're in charge until I come back, I'll, I'll probably come back around this time, probably around this. When this happens, I'll probably come back. But you didn't know exactly when they were going to come back. As the manager in charge... What do you think the owner would rather you do? Start preparing a welcome back party for him? Or get to work, do your job, and make sure the thing is running when he comes back? Right? And if he comes back in an hour, you're working. If he comes back in three hours, you're working. He's going to be happy when he comes back because you're doing what he left you to do. Right? But if you spend all your time... You know, you stop working, you stop flipping burgers, you stop making fries, and you just start focusing on like, okay, am I reading the signs correctly? Mm. Hey, you know, you know, and you get all the coworkers and you pull them away from their stations and you say, look out the door, do you see him coming? Oh, I don't see him coming. Ooh, I wonder if I missed it. I'll tell you what, I believe he's coming back in three, two, one. Okay, I, I got it wrong. I did the math wrong. But if we go back, let's, let's just, maybe I, maybe I misinterpreted something. What are you doing? You're not getting anything done. But if you work every moment in expectation, I don't know when he's coming, but I know he's coming back soon. And when he comes back, Jesus said, when he comes back, will he find faith in the earth? Now, we have to interpret what he means by faith because does he mean, will he find us having faith in God? Yes, I believe that's what he means, but I believe it's what, I, what he also would mean is that when someone said, I've kept faith, I've kept the faith, it doesn't just mean I've stayed believing. It means that I've kept the faith. I've been faithful to what you told me to do. Will he come back finding faithful people? The two, the two extremes are either you're so jaded by Christianity going off that you don't want to hear another word about Jesus coming back. In which case, you're going to have a problem with a lot of places in the Bible. Because there's a lot of places where he says, those that are eagerly waiting his appearing 
looking forward and anticipating his return, looking forward to their adoption as sons. There's a, there's a whole bunch of scriptures that say he wants us to be eagerly waiting. Go to the other side, and you're so obsessed with pinning down the time that you're not actually accomplishing the mission. And the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Is your hope in the fact that Christ said he would return? Or is your hope in the theory that you brought home, the YouTube videos you watched, that convinced you he was coming back in a certain way at a certain time? Because if your hope is in that, if your hope was in that radio preacher that told you he was coming back this and this date, 2012, then you're going to be disappointed. But if your hope is in Christ and his promise, what did he promise? I will return for you. Your hope will not disappoint you, right? Because he's coming back. And here's the good news. As far as I'm reading it, whether or not you, you lay your body down, whether or not you live on this earth until he comes back, or you've been dust for two centuries, either way, we get to be part of the party. Because it says he's bringing us with him. He's bringing those who've already fallen asleep, and he's raising these bodies from the dead. How he does that, I don't know. Because most of the people that have died are dust. Right? But he does it, whether they were shark food or burning a fire or been dead for so long that they've, re, you know, however he does it, he's resurrecting the dead. Now listen, if you have a problem with the idea that God created everything, if you have a problem grasping the idea that God created man out of nothing, this could be hard for you to believe in the resurrection too. So at some point we got to buy into the fact that he is God. And he can do impossible things. <laughs> All right? So you get, I mean, it's going to trip your head. It trips my head to think about eternity. It trips my head to think about all this. I know. To think about a God that's always been, who wasn't created, has always been. Start thinking about it and try not to get a headache, right? I mean, nobody created God. He's always been. He's the only eternal thing. But here's the deal. He created us and gave us eternity. That's a big thought too. We're going to live forever. And here, back to the scripture, is always a good thing. He says that the Lord himself, now I, I find it so awesome to see how many times in these three verses he uses the word Lord. He's turning our focus back to him. The Lord is returning. The return of the king. The return of our Lord. He's coming back. He says, this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now, I believe those are three different things because of the way he phrases it. A shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Can you imagine the same voice that raised Lazarus, but amplified, is going to raise all of these dead people. And they're going to come back. They're going to respond. But he's bringing them. I mean, here's the thing. They're going to be reunited with these bodies. He's bringing those that have fallen asleep with him. It says here, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now really, what words are meant to comfort you more than anything else? Is it exactly how it's going to happen? That might be cool. But I'd say the biggest words of comfort are those last words. Thus we will always be with the Lord. We, those who've died and those who are alive, we will always be with the Lord. He continues this in chapter 5. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren... You have no need of anything to be written to you. For, I mean, hang on. Could you please tell us? Well, here's the deal. Paul doesn't even know. Jesus at one point says, the only one that knows, he says, I haven't even appointed the time. It's, my, it's up to my father to decide this. Paul doesn't know, but he says, you don't need anybody to write you and tell you exactly when. You don't need anybody to write you and give you a date on the calendar because here's why. 
He says, because you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child. Now listen, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. You notice how he's been speaking to them this whole time? You, you, you. When he said, talks about destruction, he doesn't say you. He says them. He's drawing a line. They're a little worried. He says, while they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child. And this, I've never had a kid. I do remember it feeling pretty sudden when my wife woke me up at 3 a.m. and said, we have to go to the hospital. But there's a reason he uses the terminology of birth pangs. He's not just saying the suddenness of the whole thing, but he's also speaking of a reality that the Bible says that all creation is like a woman in labor right now. Creation is waiting for something. Creation is groaning, and it's groaning under the weight of the curse. But it's also groaning in anticipation for redemption. This world, we all know, is not going to last. We know that, right? doesn't matter what you believe about uh, climate, what you believe about the planet. doesn't matter. Just believe the Bible. This world will not last. The Bible says it will be rolled up like a scroll. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's not going to last. We know that. And in fact, we know through the scripture that there's going to be a time of great tribulation on the earth. Here's what I believe, and you've probably heard me say this before. Here's my belief. When I read the book of Revelation, I don't read it as a book of despair. I read it as a book of hope. And I believe this. I believe that God could wipe out, destroy the whole earth so he can build a new one. He could do it all in an instant. But there's a reason there's these signs and these, these seals and all of these things to the book of Revelation that are going to happen that aren't quite pleasant, but they have to happen. And I don't believe it's because God just wants to put on a show or he just wants to draw it out. I believe it's just like the Egyptians. He's giving them a chance, a chance, a chance. Wake up, wake up. Because God could do it in an instant. He could say, it's over. You're all going to hell. Could do that. He doesn't. He wants people to turn. And he's talking about people who have hardened hearts. You've been preaching to. The gospel has been proclaimed to them and they said no. No, no. You know what might save their life? One of those signs in the book of Revelation. It might wake them up. And they call, it says in those days, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow. If you read that book, you see that there's a whole group of people that got saved because they (laughs) woke up and said, we need help. And the spirit and the bride say, come. That's God's heart. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction comes on them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. They will not escape. But you, brethren, but you, brethren, you're different, aren't you? But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light. You are sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And so this day of the Lord, this return, all of this is not going to come upon you and catch you unaware and surprised and uh uh-oh, it's here. He says, we're awake, we're alert, we're sober, we're paying attention. And you may not know exactly when Jesus is returning. You, You can't point to a calendar and say this day, but you know it's soon. You're aware, you're awake, you're, you're alive to it. Something's going on. You know it's, the, the signs are here. Now listen, I don't know exactly when, but I know it's soon and I'm excited for it. And it should put an urgency in us to tell the world about Jesus and salvation. It should put an urgency in us because if we have any love in our hearts, we, have the same, we should have the same heart that God has who is not willing that any should perish. That's the heart I want to have. I'm not willing that any should perish. Let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. 
For those who sleep, they're sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. Man, I wish more people could hear that verse and believe it. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. This is how we encourage one another. This is how we build one another up. The expectation that Jesus is coming back should be a source for us, a, a, um, a spark under us to encourage one another. To build each other up. Because these are the days where we need, we're going to need it more than ever. And when I read this, God has not destined us for wrath. Look at that. He says the, that your helmet on your head is the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word salvation, the word sozo in Greek, it certainly applies to my salvation from hell, doesn't it? But we know that it, in, in, if you look throughout the scripture, there are times it means other things as well, right? So in this context, here's how I read it. He's talking about the, the wrath or the judgment that's coming upon the earth. The, the, the invoice of sin is being built up to a breaking point. There will be judgment on the earth, but why did Jesus die? To save us from that judgment. Absolutely. To rescue us. So he says, God has not destined you for that. In Romans, it says that even so much more, we will be saved from the wrath of God because of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, we will be saved from the wrath of God. So there's wrath coming on the earth. There's judgment coming on the earth, but God has not destined you for it. What has he destined you for? But for obtaining salvation. So what I read, when I hear this obtaining salvation, I believe that salvation he's speaking of is the rescuing us just as God rescued Noah from the destruction on the earth, from the flood. So he's rescuing his people in the same way. And the helmet on your head that protects your brain from freaking out and from giving way to all the fears and all the doubts and all the insecurity and all the panic. And how many of you know you need that helmet? The helmet on your head is the hope, the earnest expectation that God is my salvation. He's not going to leave me here. He's, he's bringing me. He's taking me back. He's catching us up. Somebody might tell you, well, the, the word rapture is not in the Bible. No, because the word rapture is a Latin-based word. The Bible's written in Greek. But the word rapture comes from this verse. Not from this verse, <laughs> from this chapter where he t talks about us being caught up with him. That term caught up. So you've heard of the dinosaur that's a raptor. It's called a raptor because it catches up its prey. It picks it up. It catches them up. In the same way, the, the word rapture means to catch up suddenly. And this is what's being taught in this book is it would be caught up. Now, once again, guys, if you got a different view on how exactly this turns out, have that view. But one thing we all agree on God has not destined us for wrath. Right. We will be saved. We will be rescued. We will be caught up with him. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, I believe in the last days, he says, the difficult times will come. Isn't that right? Says many will be deceived. Says there'll be persecution. We know that. But there is something beyond that that's coming upon the earth. If I'm reading my Bible correctly, there's something beyond that that's coming upon the earth and you are going to be saved, you have been saved, and you will be saved from wrath. Amen. And that's the helmet on your head. Because when fear comes and panic comes, when insecurity comes, when someone tells you, oh, are you sure about that? What keeps you sane? What keeps you from freaking out? The helmet on my head protects me. And it's my hope of salvation. You notice those three things that he brought out? The breastplate is faith and love. Your helmet is hope, faith, hope, and love. The foundation of everything. The greatest of all the fruit. I want to read you something that he says in, 
his letters to the Corinthians. First Corinthians 15. Verse 50. I remember, um, if you were to go further back, this, this chapter starts out with him affirming, because some people are saying there would be no resurrection from the dead, that once you're dead, you're dead and that's it. And he says, no, that's not true. And then some people were saying that... Um, Jesus had not even been raised from the dead. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, there's no hope for us. He says, if we're not raised from the dead, there's no hope. He says, what's the point of this? There's no resurrection. What's the point? What's the point of any of this? He says, if that's the case, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. (laughs) He says, if Christ has not been raised, then we are to be pitied above all for without any hope. So where does our hope start? Where does our hope come from? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection. Amen. That is so, so huge. And I want you to know, it's not just a spiritual thing. We are not little ghostly creatures going to be floating around up there. God has prepared for us a body. He died for your body. He redeemed your body. He bought it with a price. So we glorify God with our bodies, right? But he says that you're going to sow your natural body and you're going to reap a spiritual body. What in the world's a spiritual body? Because he makes it clear that it's still a body. We know that the Bible says I've got a, I am a spirit, I have a soul, I live in a body. Spirit, soul, and body. So what's a spiritual body? I don't know. But I know, <laughs> you thought I was going to say something really profound. I've got nothing profound for you. I just know. That it's the kind of body, if what I read in, in the, go back and read this chapter yourself. But what I read in that chapter is he says, it's, it's, he said, this body could not inherit the eternal. This body is not built to last that long. But the body you get, eternal. And maybe, just maybe, we get a clue when Jesus is risen from the dead and he walks through walls into a room. And yet they touch his hands and they can feel things. So he's not a spirit, just a spirit. Because if he was just a spirit, Thomas couldn't say, oh, I feel a hole in your hand. They touched him. They said, you're real. He made us breakfast. Like literally, he made him breakfast. That's in the Bible. And yet, he just shows up in the room all of a sudden. Maybe that's a clue as to what a spiritual body is. I don't know. Either way, it's, it's eternal. And that came alive to me. I remember... I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but I will. I often prefer funerals to weddings. Now, I think weddings are amazing and marvelous, but funerals, you get more of a chance to preach the gospel. <laughs> now, I actually, let me amend that. When I'm, when I'm doing a wedding that's like believers, the gospel's preached through that too. Right. Absolutely. So I love doing believe, you know, strong believers that want Jesus as the center I love that kind of wedding, right? But, you know, nowadays in our culture, a lot of people want a wedding and they're just looking forward to the reception. Just get this over. We want to get there. We want to get to the part. Which, I mean, who cares? You're not going to go through the tough times in life together and say, boy, but remember the reception. Remember the best man's speech. Doesn't matter. You're going to remember the vows you said to one another. However, when I've done funerals, I've done funerals with people that hated God. And their family says, we want you to come and do the funeral. And I just tell them, you know who I am, right? You know you don't need a minister to put somebody in the ground. There's no law that says you need a minister to put somebody under the ground. You don't. But you know who I am. So you know by asking me, you know what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm going to talk about what I believe. Now, if you don't like that, find somebody else. Get a relative to come up and read something nice. But if you want, if you want me, this is what you get. Right? And I just want to be honest. I don't want, any, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to, but I'm okay if people get offended. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm not trying to trick anybody. You tell them what you, this is what we are. This is what we believe. This is, I think if we don't give you this, if I don't give you hope, I've got nothing to offer you. Right? I mean, because really, you're not going to stand on judgment day and say, thank you for giving granny a nice service. Right? Like, you're not going to care. What you're going to care about is did somebody preach the gospel to you? So I say all this to say, I like, 
I, I don't like funerals, but I, I find them fruitful. I found a lot of people turn their heart to God at a time like that. And not through manipulation either. I don't believe in manipulation. I know you don't either. I believe in just simply preaching the gospel. Here's the deal. I've come to love the graveside portion. If they do a graveside, not everybody does, but I like it. And, the, and it changed for me. Some of you remember our brother, Dennis April. Remember brother Dennis April? Wonderful guy. Loved brother Dennis. Loved the Lord and loved the people of God. And one day he was, in his, he was driving his truck. His daughter was in the, in the truck. He was, you know, driving a heavy truck. And um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I remember there was an accident. He rolled and he was crushed in the, in the, in the truck. And um, so it was incredibly sad. I mean, it was something that was very hard for us as a body. But there was hope that, that Brother Dennis was with the Lord. And I remember going out to the Lloydminster Cemetery, and I remember my father doing the graveside service, and he read that scripture which said, this body will be sown a perishable body, but it, we will reap a spiritual body, an eternal one. And I remember all of a sudden it was like an, it came alive to me because he said it right as that coffin was about to go in the ground. And that literally sowing a body. We're putting this body in the ground. Now, not everybody gets a graveside service. Like I said, you know, some of the first Christians were burned alive, were hacked into pieces. I mean, it doesn't matter how, how what happens to your physical body. Either way, it's being sown. It's eventually going to turn back into dust. And we will reap a heavenly one. And it says in verse 50, this I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What does perishable mean? It's got an expiration date, right? It's going to pass away. So the body you're going to get does not get old. doesn't get sick. Behold, I tell you a mystery. What's a mystery? That's something only God can reveal. So if you're sitting here tonight and hoping that I just put enough words together in the right way that you'll understand it, without the Holy Spirit, there's no hope. God has to reveal this to us. We have to let him open your heart to it. But he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Remember what sleep means? Your body dies. You, you, your body gets laid down. We will not all sleep. That means somebody's going to live to the coming of Christ. We don't know when, but somebody will live. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, I say that scripture now, death, where is your sting? Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Grave, where's your sting? I say that now. But he says, and so it's true now, right? I mean, it's true as you walk right now in the righteousness of God and, and sin is not a master over you and you, you walk and live by the grace of God. You consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, right? The resurrection's already alive and at work in us. However, he says when that happens, and he's talking about future, then it'll really be proven. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? <laughs> and we've talked about this before. You have been adopted, but the Bible says there's a fulfillment of your adoption to come. We've been adopted. I'm already part of the family of God, but the fullness of my adoption is when I get that new body. This is a mystery, but he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, your work is not in vain in the Lord. And I want to wrap all this up with these thoughts. What's the point of knowing what's going to happen? What's the point of knowing about the return of Christ? What's the point of knowing what's going to happen to your body? Why, why does that matter? You could say it's going to happen like it's going to happen. What does it matter if I believe it or not? But I want you to pay attention to the conclusion of these thoughts, both in the letter to the Thessalonians and the letter right here to the Corinthians. 
In both places, there's a reason you should know this. In the letter of the Thessalonians, it says you comfort one another with these words. Then later on, it says keep encouraging one another, keep building each other up. When we read this in 1 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in your work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. See, if you're going through end times theories, eschatological escapades, trying to figure out exactly how it's going to pan out just to inflate your own ego, just to win an argument, just to feel smarter than everybody else, you're missing the point. Because what this should produce in you is faith, hope, and love that begins to change your life and the lives of people around you. You know, what it should produce in you is a desire to see people saved. What it should produce in you is a desire to encourage those that are, that are falling behind and say, come on, your, your work, listen to this, your work is not in vain. What, what is he telling us? This all gets redeemed. Your body, even your body gets redeemed. This is not for nothing. We're not all just turning into worm food. Everything you're doing now has echoes and effects throughout eternity. So that's encouraging when someone says, oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I feel like I just keep doing the same thing for God, and I don't feel it's doing much. I, I'm, I don't feel like I'm having an effect. Here I am out in the middle of nowhere. And, and, and you know, what difference am I making? And you say, oh, you don't know. You don't know what you're doing right now as an effect for, for, for more than you can even imagine. Your brain can't even comprehend how much of an effect this has. Your work's not in vain. What you're doing now is part of God's great plan to redeem everything. What you're doing right now is God saving the world. What you're doing right now is part of the greatest story of all of history. It began with the beginning and it's going to end. It's not even going to end. It has no end. And that's good news. You know, Paul said to Timothy, and I, I take this to heart. He said, don't have anything to do with these speculations. Endless discussions, myths and fairy fables. He said, all of these speculations that do nothing but add more questions. And he said, and they do nothing to further the administration of God, which is by faith. The administration of God, what God's trying to do on the planet. See, if you're so caught up in some weird little theory, ask yourself, is this furthering the work of the Lord? Or is this just making, just, making me feel a little smarter than everybody else. He said, but the goal, and he follows it with this, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a sincere faith. So I think God wants us to go deep. God wants you to open the book of Revelation. God wants you to study about these end things. But we need to check our motives. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this so I can have my little pet theory and I can you know, just feel smarter? Or does this have a fruit in my life? Is this causing me to love deeper? Is this causing me to, to urgently say, I, my work is not in vain in the Lord? Is this causing me to go and say, I want to see souls saved? Is this causing me to encourage my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Because if it's not, you need to check back. Am I, am I really investing in the right things? Is it just causing more questions? Now, I'm not telling you don't go deep. Go deep, right? right? But I believe the deeper we go, the more we become like him. The Bible says, and this, I forgot which translation says it exactly this way, but it says this, that knowledge puffs up. I believe it's the English Standard Version. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Yeah. So if I'm just going from YouTube video to YouTube video so that I can feel like I know a little bit more. And it's not producing love in my heart. It's not causing me to live for Jesus. It's just causing me to feel superior. When in argument, I'm wasting my time. Because puffed up people get popped. But built up people remain even when the storm comes and goes. And so we, as a church, I, know, I think, you know, the scripture says, at some point, we need to move on from the elementary things. You can't stay on milk your whole life. You got to move to meat, right? But the meat will do the same thing for you that the milk did. It will cause you to grow. 
It will cause you to grow. And growing in Christ means growing further, as it says in Ephesians 4, growing into him. And the more we grow into Christ, the more we grow into one another. And John says very clearly, and he's addressing Gnosticism. He's addressing Gnosticism, which is a belief that we have a secret superior knowledge, a secret wisdom, a superior. If you come to us, we'll teach you about the secret things, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul addresses it in the letter to the Colossians and says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And John says, you don't need any special teachers. Don't you know the anointing abides within you and is able to teach you all things? Then he says this, if anybody tells you, I know God, and they don't love their brother, they're a liar. And what is he addressing? He's addressing people that were saying, we have theories, we have special doctrines, come to us, the gurus, and yet there's no love in their life. I believe this, go deep. I think we should be a group of people, don't let your heart become hardened to the fact that Jesus is coming soon. Get excited about it. Be eager. Be awaiting it. Be anxious for it, but not anxious in the way that you're worrying. Be excited for it like you're waiting for Christmas morning. Get excited and, and, and just alert and sober, but sober doesn't have to mean serious. So, I mean, without any joy, it's serious, but it's got great joy to it. Be sober, be alert, be awake. And it'll cause you to live different. And I've gone through the scripture and I've studied every time in the New Testament he talks about Christ's return. And you know what I found? In the same sections that he talks about Christ's return, it affects how we live. Always does. People that are waiting for Jesus live different. You live with anticipation. You're living with your life excited about getting people saved. Excited about his kingdom. Excited about that. And I just want that to be you. So don't for a second let your heart be hardened because some guy or woman said, I know the date and they were wrong. Don't worry about them. He's coming soon. Amen? Don't fall into the trap of dumb little theories that do nothing but administer more questions. But dig deep into the word. If, you get, if you're deep in the word and you find yourself deeper in love with Jesus, you're heading in the right direction. Stand to your feet. Let's pray together.